our theme today is around focus and one of the things that you'll hear me say toward the end of today's message around focus is that our focus needs to be on Jesus Christ and and uh, Jesus the New Testament says is the light of the world and that song is just a good uh, simple reminder for us uh, that he is the light uh, that we bring and the light that we serve now if you have not been tracking with us over the last five or six weeks uh, we are focusing our teaching time in the Old Testament book of Joshua uh, in a series called Following Where God Leads. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 3 of Joshua and a message that will help us to uh, look at the focus that was required by Joshua and by God's people if they were ever to move forward into the land that God promised them. And it centers, uh, this focus centers around the Ark of the Covenant, which was central in their worship of God. And again today, this Old Testament story has some real teachable moments for those of us who live in the 21st century. We'll get to that in just a few moments, but join me in a moment of prayer, will you? God, you are our guide and you are our protector. As we gather today in this sacred place, open our minds, our souls, and our hearts that we may be inclined to hear the gentle direction of your spirit in our lives. Help us to follow you as you lead us to the land that you've created for us, uh, where we may dwell with you and in you for all of eternity. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the New Testament book of Colossians, the third chapter, the first two verses, the Apostle Paul says this to us. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. What we focus on can influence the direction of our life. Focus deter can determine the difference between success and failure. I learned that when I was young. The coach would say, keep your eye on the ball. The teacher would say, keep your eyes on your own paper. But focus is important. Beyond the world of sports and school, businesses that lose their strategic focus may see their profit margins disappear. Couples who fail to pay attention to their marriage slowly become strangers. Organizations that lose sight of their mission soon wallow in mediocrity. And churches that fail to center on Christ trade a ministry of eternal consequence for activity that has a temporary impact focusing on God can create great expectations that can lead to great endeavors as Joshua prepares to move God's people into the promised land there's no mystery about what the focal point is it is the Ark of the Covenant mentioned often in Scripture this piece of tabernacle furniture uh, was approximately five feet long uh, three feet wide and three foot, three foot deep. In Joshua chapter 3, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned nine times in just 17 verses. It symbolizes two important dimensions that are indispensable to all who would seek to be part of a movement of God. And the first, was a it was a reference point for God's people. As Joshua and the Israelites stand at the brink of this new land that God has promised them, what lies between them and this new land is the Jordan River. 
the Israelite officers, according to verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3, the Israelite officers went through the camp giving these instructions to the people. When you see the Levitical priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Since you have never traveled this way before, they will guide you. You see, the Ark serves as a reference point for God's people, indicating when when they're about to move and which way they are to go. Now notice where the focal point is not directed. The focus is not directed to the officers or by these officers to the uh, to the obstacles that are in front of God's people. The Jordan River which flows between them and the promised land is not a meandering creek because verse 15 tells us that is it is at flood stage likely flowing rapidly and making any crossing precarious. It would be easy for the people to be discouraged if their focus was on the obstacles that were ahead of them. Obstacles need to be noted for sure, but they must not be the center of attention in any endeavor, especially endeavors of faith. It is also clear that the focus was not on Joshua or the officers or the priests. It is not centered in one leader or on a group of leaders. If the focus is on any human, there would be temporary success at best. And strong leaders demonstrate great wisdom when they seek to fulfill their roles without seeking to become the center of attention. The temptation to take first place is based on pride, and that's as old as Satan himself. It invites God's opposition instead of God's blessing. In the New Testament book of James, chapter 4, it reminds us God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. Now, I think it's interesting to note that because of Joshua's servant mentality, God chooses him uh, to exalt him in the eyes of all of Israel so that people would know that just as God was with Moses, he was with Joshua. And it's all part of building up Joshua's credibility with his people and letting them know that God determines who needs to be promoted in order to move God's plan forward. Now, churches also need to be reminded that the ministry of a congregation is not focused on any one leader or even a group of leaders. And while these are people who have a certain amount of visibility to fulfill their roles, that visibility must always be offered to God for his purposes. And our goal is that no one be indispensable except Jesus Christ, the true head of the church. Anytime a congregation begins to focus on a person instead of on Jesus, that church loses its power to last and to have a fruitful ministry. For the Israelites, the focus was not on the obstacles ahead of them. It was not on the human leadership. The reference point was the Ark of the Covenant. So since we are no longer living in Old Testament times, what is our reference point today, you may be asking? Let's take a closer look at what the Ark of the Covenant represented. First of all, the Ark represented the presence of God to his people. It was kept in the most sacred part of the tabernacle uh, where the, the glory of God resided. And representatives of two angelic beings with their wings raised stood on the lid of the Ark. The mercy seat rested beneath the wings on top of the Ark of the Covenant and God was present and his mercy could be found there. Secondly, the ark uh, contained the word of God. Inside were the tablets of stone on which were recorded the Ten Commandments. In today's language, we might call that our core values. 
the non-negotiable, the authoritative will of God for his people. So the ark contained the written word of God, and it symbolized God's authority over his people. Today, God's spirit resides in us. His spirit guides us through conviction and through affirmation and reminds us that we are God's children. We also have God's written word, and that is the Bible. And we give it a place of authority over anything else. So God's word and God's spirit today provide our reference point. Now the Ark of the Covenant helps us not only to understand what our reference point should be, but when we should be especially careful to focus on that reference point. Now while it's true that we should always be sensitive to God's spirit and responsive to God's word, there are some occasions when we must be strategically focused on God. In Joshua's day, the ark was utilized to bring the Israelites' focus back to their creator during four major uh, times in their life, during new initiatives, during conflict, times of conflict, during times of failure and confusion, and also during times of worship. So I want to take a brief look at each of those four things today. First of all, we need to focus during new initiatives. In chapter 3 and 4, the Israelites are preparing to enter the promised land. The territory is unfamiliar to them, so they focus on the ark, and the ark will help them to know which way to go. Joshua doesn't allow the people to remain where they are and uh, to be completely familiar with this new territory before he moves them on. There are some things that cannot be known until they move ahead. So he points them to something that is familiar to them, the Ark of the Covenant, as they enter a land that is unfamiliar to them. And I've discovered over the years that you and I don't have to completely grasp the vision or understand all of the action plan in order to move forward to follow God's will and plan for our life. Some things, in fact, cannot be comprehended until after we begin to act on them. The key to moving beyond our comfort zone is not knowing all of that lies ahead of us, but being focused on the leadership of God's Spirit. Anytime a church launches a new ministry initiative, it's a great time for prayer and for reviewing the biblical reasons of why we're doing what we're doing. Secondly, during focus is needed during times of conflict. In Joshua chapter 6, the Israelites follow the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the great walled city of Jericho. And this is one of the many times in the Bible that it records the Ark being carried into conflict. It is a visible reminder of God's presence in the midst of the conflict and the victory that ultimately will be brought by God himself. So a renewed focus on God's word and God's spirit during times of conflict is vital for spiritual leaders. If there's conflict in your marriage, it's important to focus on the promptings of God's spirit and what the Bible has to say about your situation than on two people just trying to get their own way and argue about their personal needs. If you're going through a time of spiritual warfare, it's important to focus on the heavenly armor that God has promised us that equips us over uh, to, to overcome the enemy. Many church fights are centered on personality clashes and trivial matters like the color of the carpet or the, per, uh, the, the person's favorite pew that someone is sitting in today, you know. 
Too often, church people fail to set their hearts and their minds on what the Apostle Paul calls the things above. And we get bogged down instead by trivial matters. Third, we need focus during times of failure and confusion. In Joshua chapter 7, we find Joshua and the elders of Israel falling face down before the ark. And they've just been defeated in a battle by the people of Ai in what should have been an easy victory for them. And they don't understand why this has happened until God informs them of a sin in their camp, a sin committed by a man by the name of Achan who has brought about their downfall. You see, failure tends to create a self-centered focus that is often accompanied by a pity party. Woe is me introspection has limited benefit and at times may even cause us to miss what God is really saying to, the, to us in the aftermath of failure. I wish I could have learned all of life's lessons through successful ventures, but I know that there are many principles that I've been taught through failure. A soul searching that seeks God's leading is a way to capitalize even on setbacks. And then fourth, we need focus during times of worship. In Joshua chapter 8, the Ark of the Covenant is found in the midst of a public covenant renewal service. So worship services at their best are centered on God's Word and are led by God's Spirit. Unfortunately, lots of public church services are not all that God-centered. I've been in some services when visiting other churches where I've come away asking, what biblical principles did I even learn today from, uh, what this, from this message that's going to help me to honor God uh, during this coming week? Did I worship in in a way that was responsive to God's Spirit. And in some cases, it's been, I've been hard-pressed to answer those questions positively. It's a fine line, I think, that some churches walk between entertaining the audience and leading people in sincere worship of God. And it's sad when worship services are poorly planned and the message is irrelevant, and it's not human preference that is the focal point of our worship. It should be the awesomeness of our God. And prayer and biblical teaching about things like repentance and obedience to God and sacrifice might not be popular themes with audiences today, but they are part of our giving God praise and seeking his forgiveness and promising to be obedient to the will of God in our life. Now, I appreciate the growing awareness in many churches all across our nation and to reach people who are unchurched or de-churched in their communities and build, they're building bridges to carry the gospel to non-religious people and hopefully we are one of those churches. Church leaders are evaluating the style, the content of worship services. We're making sure that the music and the message is connecting with people who are basically today in our culture biblically illiterate and more and more churches are seeing the need to reach out in mission in their local communities and all of that is good stuff. But we are always in danger of losing perspective if we are doing what we're doing to just cater by uh, doing what we're doing to cater to the whims of a few people and forget that our ultimate audience is God. And what we're really doing is trying to please Him. That's all that really matters. There is a constant tension between relevance and reverence. And we must seek to be relevant to our culture, but not lose reverence for God. But how do we do that? Well, we show reverence for God when we recognize the distance between the Creator, God, and the created, us. 
Notice the orders that these officers give to the people uh, of God in the camp. Uh, and this is in verse 4 of chapter 3. Stay about a half mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant. Make sure you don't come any closer. Now, why would they maintain a space of about 10 football fields between them and the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it was simply to show reverence for God and for God's holiness. The distance points to the difference between the Creator and the creation. One of the more challenging passages in the Old Testament is, about a, is a story about a man uh, named Uzzah who was killed when he reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant. Apparently, those who were transporting the Ark had become very careless with it, disregarding God's previous instructions concerning exactly who was to carry it and how it was to be handled, and they were treating it just like any other piece of luggage. They had become overly familiar with this sacred object. You see, I, there's a lesson in that, that there is a great danger in over-familiarity. God has invited us into his presence with confidence because of Jesus Christ. To call out to him as our Heavenly Father. But many people have reduced God's stature to the point of treating him as if he's just one of us. He's our big buddy. And in that process, many have concluded that God exists to meet our needs. He is like our genie in the bottle. So we show reverence for God when we recognize that there's a distance between the creator and the created. Secondly, we show reverence for God when we seek our own experience with him. Joshua tells the people in uh, verse 5, um, purify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. He wants them to understand that the movement of God is not just about conquering this new land. It's about expanding their vision of God and deepening their commitment to God. And the same is true for us anytime God does something on our behalf. God is not nearly as interested, you see, in changing our circumstances when we're praying for this or that. God is not nearly as interested in changing our circumstances as he is in changing us. And he wants us to know him as the God of the miraculous, the God who can do amazing things, not just the God of maintenance and ordinary things. But our consecration is a prerequisite to our experience with God. Undoubtedly, we all hear stories of how God has intervened in the lives of people, but every generation, every one of us must personally encounter the power of God for ourselves because Christian faith is not a hand-me-down, second-hand experience. Congregations like ours must ensure that our young people are encountering, encountering the same amazing God that we know. And this is often disrupted by the false assumption that today's generation will somehow experience God in the same way that previous generations did. You know, we get wrapped up very quickly in preserving past methods, past traditions, rather than focusing on the desired outcome that each new generation knows this God who will do amazing things among them. Some churches like ours are providing different styles of worship and different ways of doing Christian education so that we can minister to different generations of God's people. Because each generation must have the opportunity to consecrate themselves to God in a way that's meaningful for them. 
And if the last thing that God did in your life was in the good old days, then your relationship with him is probably a matter of remembrance more than a matter of reverence. Third, we need to show, we show reverence for God when we see evidence of God at work. Verse 10, today you will know that the living God is among you. He will surely drive out before you the people occupying the land. They will know that God is among them because they will see evidence of God at work. See, it's an act of worship to look for evidence that God's alive and well. One of the ways that we do this is to notice when God answers prayers and then give God the credit for that. So often we ask God for things, and when he does it, we move on to the next request as if we're oblivious to what he's just done. And that's why I think small groups play such a key role in the life of the church. This opportunity to get together on a regular basis with people who become very near and dear to us gives us opportunity for sharing our needs and our prayers. And I would challenge you, if you are a praying person, that you take it one step further than that, and that is to... uh, to often list those prayer concerns, not just your prayer concerns, but God's answers to those prayers. Acknowledge somehow those answers to prayer. Review the list. Celebrate what God has done in your life. Because we're irreverent when we take God for granted. We show reverence when we notice what he's doing and then thank him for it. We serve a God who's alive and well. And then finally, we show reverence for God when we live in obedience to God's commands. Look at verse 14. So the people left their camp to cross the Jordan, and the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. And when God says, um, break camp, it's time to go. Do we always do that? When God says, it's time to move ahead, do we do that? When God says, it's move out, do we do that or do we dig in our heels? See, obedience to God is the ultimate test of our reverence for God. No amount of worship is a substitute for actually doing the will of God. King Saul found that out when he disobeyed God, and he attempted to compensate for that by hastily uh, throwing uh, this uh, service together in which he offered some sacrifices, and the prophet Samuel confronted him with the words, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience to God is better than any sacrifice. The Lord, Proverbs says, detests the sacrifices of the wicked, but he delights in the prayers of the upright. Do churches sometimes substitute worship for obedience? Do we ever pray earnestly and publicly for lost souls and then make very little effort to reach people in our communities? Do we sing about our faith only to pursue a a risk-free ministry? Do we vigorously discuss the virtues of Ephesians 5, which talks about loving and caring for each other as Christ loves his church, only to leave the room to gossip and let conflicts with others remain unresolved? If we do, our our worship shows no reverence for God. In fact, worship is more than shedding a few tears or feeling emotionally involved. It's more than tossing a few bucks in the plate to encourage God to be on our side. And it's more than attending church thinking that God's pleased with you just showing up. For many Christians today, worship is so focused on human comfort and meeting our own needs rather than obedience to Christ. You see, we no longer follow the Ark of the Covenant, but we are not left to wonder what our ultimate focal point should be. 
And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, we, are, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and he's seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Jesus came from heaven to earth, lived a life offered in obedience to God's purposes, and he is the reference point that we relate to one who has fully entered into our humanity. And yet we owe him our reference and our, our, our allegiance, for he ascended from earth to heaven and assumed his rightful place of authority at the throne of God. But we set our th minds, as Paul says, on things above so that our lives and our churches might be available to him as we live out his calling here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, prompt us to center our life and our ministry completely in you. Let nothing influence our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, and our leadership more than your spirit and your word. And may we always humbly seek you so that you can lift us up to accomplish your purposes. May our relationship with you always be marked by a closeness that will never take you for granted, but remain up to date and focused on reaching others who need your touch in their life. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.